0: I love Burn the Haystack because I'm a deep thinker and I like to challenge old traditions to make way for a brighter future. That's also why I chose to get my degree from Avondale University College. With a thriving community of believers, I was able to kickstart my career and grow my faith at the same time. Business, arts, teaching, nursing or ministry. Called to make a difference? Called to be at Avondale.
1: Welcome back to Burn the Haystack with Josh and Jesse
0: I'm Jesse
1: And I'm Josh And this
0: is a show all about saving the best and burning the rest No Jesse I'm saying no to that
1: Oh, you know why? Uh, no, I don't know why. <laughs> because today we have a special guest with us who wrote a book called Saying No to God," which is a pretty controversial title, but he's going to unpack it and it'll like make a lot more sense. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, please welcome Matthew Cortman to the podcast. Hey, thank you so much for
2: having me. It's an honor to be here. <laughs>
1: <laughs> hey, it's great to have you. It's been in the works for a while and it's always exciting when we've had a, a podcast that's taken a while to cook and now it's it's here for Everybody's serving. Um, Hey, so before we start, Matthew, why don't you just tell us, uh, tell our beautiful listeners a little bit about yourself. Sure.
2: Um, So I have been born and raised a Seventh-day Adventist. Um, I've pretty much been exposed to ministry throughout my whole life. Uh, My mom served in unofficial capacities as sort of a fill-in minister um, in several different uh, churches. And I was baptized at the age of 12 by Mark Finley during a Revelation of Hope seminar in San Diego, California. Mm, went to La Sierra University, uh, studied with some of the coolest minds in Adventism I've gotten to personally know, and uh, went to Yale Divinity School to get my master's in Second Temple Judaism. And now I'm currently doing a PhD in New Testament studies.
1: Yep, Dang. So probably more qualified to be here than us. <laughs>
0: Oh, no, no, please. You have real life experiences. I'm an A kid. Well, I, you know, I'll say this. um, Having a young Adventist um, theology major in doing, having done his master's, doing doctorate, all that sort of stuff. That's, that's pretty rare. I, I don't know many young Adventist scholars out there. So, I mean, we, we have friends who are, you know, a little bit more bookish than we are got a little bit more got a got a few better grades when we were going through university than we did but to have a legit <laughs> not better Jesse
1: just different
0: just different, <laughs> different it's same grades. same but different <laughs> <laughs> yeah. like 30 points no um but um what was i going to say i was i was trying to i was trying to pay Matthew a compliment of being a young I'm glad you have
2: this issue too. I'm really glad. Like I have this issue and then, you know, I'm teaching a class and I've got, you know, I've got people who are 80 and over in the class. And when I start having this experience, I'm just like, well, that's got to make you feel good. (laughs) (laughs) I have the same problem. I've had the same problem for for years. I'll be like, what was I saying? (laughs) I was literally teaching something in one of my courses. I was like, all right, forgive me. What the heck were you saying that I was replying to? I actually forgot halfway through my reply.
0: <laughs> you don't have like the old age sort of to, to, to on to, to kind of excuse yourself, do you? No, I don't hard. have
2: to make it a joke and, and hope people laugh at it and not me. <laughs> but if they laugh at me at the very least they laughed. So.
0: I've got to ask what, what is it like teaching a course to, I'm assuming a large part of the class is always a fair bit older than you. What's that like?
2: That hasn't actually been the case. Surprisingly, Um, I've had. So for most of the courses that I teach, which are just independent online zoom courses um, that go for like an academic quarter length, about 10, 11 weeks. Usually so far I've had majority of people who are, I would say, I mean, they are older. But not like older, older, like the majority yeah. of students would be between the age bracket of like 30 and and 40 or, or 40s. And so it, it doesn't feel very strange. Um, but like recently, I think we, we've been slowly getting one or more older gentlemen to join, which is really great because it adds a lot of diversity and a lot of breadth of experiences that you know, it's amazing. Like my classes sometimes are fantastic because no one's doing it for credit. They're just genuinely curious. Like let's have a class of the Gnostic Gospels. Okay. 30 people want to do that. And they're all genuinely want to know, right? Like they're <laughs> genuinely interested. So of course, you know, half of them aren't going to stick through it. They're going to drop out. <laughs> At least the <laughs> half that stick through the course are like super interested. And so they're not getting a grade out of it. And, but the experiences they all bring are incredible. And For most of the courses i've taught the majority of students haven't been adventists which has Hmm. been fun but then it's i always have a mixed group so there's always adventists in there um and so the conversations are just amazing and like the kinds of people in these classes represent even within adventism such a diversity of perspectives so Hmm. it's fun i love i love being able to teach because it's the greatest way to learn Honestly, like to hear, first of all, it's great because you learn things when you need to be teaching them. But two, the perspectives that other people give is just like, wow, I am learning so much. My mind is getting, and my teachers used to say that La Sierra all the time. We're the the lucky ones. We're getting all the stuff you give. Um, But I didn't really believe that. (laughs) <laughs> when I was a student. Uh, now I'm like, oh, actually, you know, I didn't, I didn't, they, they, why was I paying tuition? <laughs> you know, where's my paycheck as a student for <laughs> every time I contribute a thought that the teacher goes, that's really great. All right. <laughs> Pay up. <laughs> I think that, I think that just
0: may be a you thing, Matthew. I don't know about Josh, but I, I remember sitting fair, through a fair few uh, university level courses where somebody thought they had something very, very interesting and profound to say. And everybody else collectively rolled their eyes at the same
2: time. Oh, no, 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 no. Uh, that was me. I, in my first in my first quarter, uh, as a freshman, I didn't have a clue how I should be in a classroom. So I was, I was the person who was like, I was scared to death. How am I gonna, I was sitting front row. I'm like, oh no, how am I gonna get a good grade? And I'm like super, like I didn't believe that I was gonna succeed. I was like, oh no, I just gotta get C's get degrees, C's get degrees. Um, I was scared I was gonna fall flat on my face. And so I'm I'm the one who's like trying to raise their hand and, and <laughs> like somehow demonstrate that I know what's going on and be the best student. And, and, yeah, and yeah, there were people in the back of the room who were just like, <laughs> I, I knew that later, they told me. Um, and then, you know, like you grew up, you 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 figured out, like I like sitting in the middle and I don't like having to answer questions and, you know, I, I don't have to demonstrate anything. It's like you get into the groove, but like I met so many freshmen like me, like that went through that experience. And <laughs> It's fun when you're like, you've gone past it, you look over and there's that person who's doing it like, ah, hi. <laughs> and then you watch them change and you're like, all right, cool. You, you figure out. But, like, I honestly, I wasn't referring to myself. Like, I've been in, like, in Kendra Holovic Valentine's class and Maury Jackson's class uh, in Wano Kim's class. They do that all the time. They'll praise students for, for insights that they'll give. And they'll be like, wow, that's so cool. That's such a great perspective. That was a pretty regular occurrence. So hmm. I wasn't trying to make a reference to me by any means. I would have been the guy in the
0: beginning. that people are like. Oh. You're all good, man. You're like, all good. No,
1: that's not great. <laughs> um, hey, so, I mean... I guess people... I'm sure people would be asking because, um, I mean, in our part of... I mean, we have listeners in both, I don't know, kind of all over the place, but a big chunk of our listenership is Australia, New Zealand. A big chunk is in the US. So, the US probably get what the whole Yale thing is about. Over here, we just see it referenced in movies all the time, I think, is really... That's my only reference point for <laughs> yep. Yale. It's so. Gilmore Girls for um, me, man. Yeah, I don't know. What was, like, your driving decision in going and, and studying further through through Yale? and what's that experience like as, as an Adventist and studying, I guess, with your Adventist lens, going through that school of divinity. Yeah.
2: So you're asking me to explain what Yale is or, or why it has a reputation? Sure, along yeah. with that question? Is that yep. what yep, you're please. saying in the beginning? Okay. Yeah,
1: because so, like, to me, yeah. it's like everyone's talks about Yale and I'm like, yay, Yale? <laughs> so,
2: <gee. I> <laughs> like you know like uh, does oxford have a pretty well-known reputation in australia new zealand when they hear that name yeah cambridge oxford okay yeah yeah. so like yeah i would say in america uh,
1: right that's (laughs) (laughs) i'll show myself out (laughs) um no uh
2: i was (laughs) So in America, like I would say that probably when it comes to thinking through top schools, like in America, there's the Ivy League schools and basically Harvard, Yale, Brown. um, I mean, those are probably the ones that actually people, I think there's more, but you know, Mm -hmm. in terms of like what people outside the US would probably recognize. And so in some sense, you've got like Oxford, Cambridge, and you've got that Harvard and Yale, and, and they're, like, they're just like the top schools in terms of what you expect is like the expectation. So uh, the thing is is that in regards to that, you know, I just knew that I wanted to study at my undergrad, you know, and have that kind of Adventist education from people who were really well studied, which is why when I was looking at different Adventist schools, what drew me to La Sierra was realizing that La Sierra all the professors had come and done their PhDs at these major schools. They had gotten their degrees at Harvard, at Princeton, at, at, um, at Claremont, et cetera. And so I was like, okay, they're Adventists who left the bubble. And mm-hmm. I wanted to study with those people because I was like, you're going to give me a grounding in Adventism that works with the broader world of Christianity mm-hmm. and is scholarly. And it did and I owe so much to my professors in that regard. La Sierra was wonderful. The Divinity School was wonderful in training me in that regard. Um, And I knew that I wanted to go beyond the bubble to do my education, because I knew that once I had done what I did over at La Sierra, like no offense, but I had pretty much Like that wasn't going to really, I wasn't going to really fit or expand my wings correctly if I was to stay within like the denominational schooling or if I was, there'd just be way too much that was just repeat. I wouldn't be pushing myself constantly to keep going further. So I I was looking for a school that I could go to and um, Yale ended up as, it was always a school that I had wanted to go to because... Um, certain professors who worked there. Like I had a deep interest in Second Temple Judaism, a deep love of the Apocrypha, of, of the time period of Judaism when Jesus was around. And, and I love that stuff. And, and there was an actual degree concentration at Yale for Second Temple Judaism, which is really unique. So John Collins was teaching it as uh, the advisor. And, and, you know, that just, it was a perfect thing. I never actually thought I was going to go. I never thought I would actually get in. I was pretty sure that I wasn't going to get in. So I just assumed, I never put too much weight in it. I wanted it, but like, as I told you, when I started La Sierra, I wasn't sure I would get C's. I was like wow. worried about falling flat on my face. So when I'm sending my applications to schools like Harvard and Yale, and uh, I'm like, nah, that's not going to happen. But, you know, and especially when I got the rejection letter from Harvard <laughs> and which is fine. I was never going to do it. I did it for, for, for giggles, but when it came in like a couple days before Yale did, i was like all right that's the omen Mm -hmm. not gonna happen not gonna work all right and so i i was kind of depressed a little bit i was like no it's not gonna happen i was like psyching myself you know for the rejection letter and then when it wasn't a rejection i was just like i actually have a video of myself screaming (laughs) i I did i was like i don't know i'm gonna film myself with my computer when i open up the the thing Mm. And, you know, on the other hand, like there's a big difference between like, oh, my goodness, I got accepted to Oxford and then actually going to Oxford. Right. Like these things look so magical when you're from the outside and Mm. you're like walking, you know, without any stress, looking at all these. And then like once you get in there, all that magic just sort of somewhat dissipates, (laughs) you are like this is just a school, (laughs) it's no different. (laughs) Everything's the same, (laughs) just a different building. (laughs) And then, you know, you just, you get used to it. And then, you know, it's still, I wouldn't say uh, that the edge, I probably would say that in general, the education isn't miles different than what you get somewhere else. It all really depends on the teachers, how good and skilled they are um, and how really, how much you're willing to put into a class. Like that's Mm -hmm. always going to be the deciding factor of how smart or how much you get out of it. And so I think I really appreciate having gone to Yale, but at the same time, like I don't think that people should, should see a Yale or an Oxford or, or one of these degrees and go, whoa, Mm -hmm. like this is actually so much better than the other person who has a degree from another institution. Like maybe, but also maybe they were the crappy student at Oxford (laughs) 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 got in and scraped by and, and wasn't really good. And that other student from the no name university actually has published and has articles and is really brilliant. And, you know, so it's like sometimes so much that comes with these kinds of schools is like this glamor and glitz, this, this mirage of, you know, look, I have the name. So suddenly like, I get so many people who are just like, they like me just because they suddenly hear that like, I went to Yale. Like a mm. lot of atheists too are like, oh my goodness, he went to Yale. So he's some Christian I can actually listen to. Mm. Um, and it's like, well, that's, you know, like I actually had all these ideas back at La Sierra. Like, I, you know, <laughs> it's like, yeah. it's like I wrote the book saying no to God at La Sierra, uh, <laughs> not not at Yale. It was already It was already at the printing, it was already at the publisher by then. And so in some sense, it's like, well, When I'm like, when I talk to some fundamentalists who are very um, on edge about my book, they're like, yes, we see what Yale did to you. And it's like, (laughs) no, 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 no. That's something else I learned while at these schools is that, you know, people think that these schools turn out certain kinds of students. And what I think Mm. I learned at Yale is no, certain kinds of students apply to these schools. (laughs) You know, it's not that they're, indoctrinating these students to believe a certain way. It's that the students who are already in a certain mode of thinking are drawn to schools that represent that kind of thinking. Mm. And so it's an ecosystem that keeps pumping out the same kinds of students. But it's not its not like there's a conspiracy. I mean, in America, <laughs> I don't know about in Australia, New Zealand, but in America, you'll have a lot of conservatives who are like, these Ivy League schools, they're going to grab you. They're going to change you. They're going to twist them. And it's like, nah, nah. Mm-hmm. There are lots of conservatives at Yale too. Yale was very conservative friendly. They liked to, to bring a lot of people from an evangelical background and, and because their goal was to send them as like missionaries back to their communities. That's to, so funny. To, to help change them. Not like they're indoctrinating the students while they're there. They're just hoping that like they're good representatives to, to go back. Harvard, on the other hand, like was I, I learned that they have, or at least at the time they were rumored to have a strict You know no 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 denominational schools you know no students that came from denominational schools they didn't they didn't they didn't even want to like review the the students that might come from that background it's like they're very i'd say um because of their um unitarian roots and i think their their interest is much more in world religion their interest is much more broader whereas like yale was very uh, christ-centric and built itself as christocentric like they at my orientation, they were very focused on Christianity. So, you know, I was I was very happy about that decision. That played a big role too. I wanted to be at a school that was very well known for biblical studies, um, but I also wanted a school that still believed. Mm-hmm. Not like I couldn't learn anything from a school that didn't believe, it's just, I did want a school that espoused to some degree, you know, a belief in the material that they were studying. And so I, I was very happy with that decision. Hmm. Hmm.
1: Yeah, oh, that's awesome um, Well, I guess speaking of the book Let's, uh, let's just dive right into it I'm, uh, I'm excited to talk about it it's, So, let's just get it right out of the gate Saying no to God sounds like a super controversial title <laughs> I'm sure a lot of people Oh, there it is If you're watching the video, you can see it now Ladies and gentlemen Complete no to God. with
0: the uh, glowing endorsement from Pete Rollins Which is just such a, a beautiful, beautiful thing a much-needed book shows us how to move beyond both the conservative and progressive forms of faith. Wow. Who knew that one book could do that? that? That's 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 pretty incredible.
1: Yeah. I've got to say, it was super refreshing too and almost a little bit jarring at times, but exciting to read an Adventist author quoting Pete Rollins, you know, like and having a Pete Rollins, like to me, that was like two of these worlds that I don't see ever seeming to meet. But then all of a sudden in your book, they kind of collide and i think you quoted rob bell in there somewhere too right like, i did yeah yeah like that's like there's that's nothing awesome new
2: there. under the sun or something <laughs> like that there is some quote from rob bell with ecclesiastes i think
1: yeah classic. and I, I don't know that for me was super refreshing and at the same time i was like i have never seen this before i didn't even know this was possible right, right.
2: and 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 also like the the i intentionally wanted to write a book that um identified myself and rooted myself as an Adventist Christian writing to all Christians and balancing that tension. Like, you know, I'm not just writing um, to Adventists and I'm not trying to write to Christians and pretending that I'm not an Adventist. Mm. And that balance, I don't know of any other book that does that. Nah, it is so
0: hard. Yet. And it's I hope so others hard. do. Yeah. We're either I'm talking- glad, like
2: I have had so many non-adventists be like, yo, I'd heard about that Ellen White. She cool. <laughs> <laughs> she's lit. <laughs> she's got some, she's quite a progressive. She's got some really cool views from back in the day. And I'm just like,
0: good. <laughs>
2: you keep what? that impression because there will come people who will beat just, it out of you. Just don't <laughs> talk to any
0: Adventists about it and you'll be fine.
2: Oh yeah. I love that on podcasts where they're like, please, I don't know what Adventism is. Explain it to us. I'm like, all right, well, well, <laughs> let's talk about what Adventism is in theory. <laughs> let's talk about Adventism in practice. And you know, like, and I always specify like, this is gonna be the same for any denomination, but it's really hard to like, be like, and so this is part of our history and this is part of our tradition. Look at the social justice initiatives we were a part of. Look yeah. at this, look at this, look at this. And it's like, now, but if you go to your average Adventist congregation, <laughs> you might see a disconnect. <laughs> <laughs> and that gets a little hard, you know, you're like, yeah. you're like, I want you to see this amazing church that that is in my mind and that does exist, but is unlikely to be found at your neighborhood. Yep. <laughs>
0: uh, yep. Stop, you know. I, bro, I, I resonate with that so hard because I'm a, I'm a pastor and chaplain, so I have to do what's called preference interviews for any new students who are joining our school. And as the chaplain, it is my responsibility to share what our special character is aka what makes us different from your average christian school and i have a checklist from our you know adventist education department of what i have to tell new parents about i just did one yesterday and um it's so funny because you kind of explain all these things ellen white health message the eschatological deal um all that sort of stuff and then at the end all the parents who are like pentecostal christians they're like oh cool 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 and then the mother is like so how much of this is going to be taught to my child in the course of their and i'm just like you know what we are an adventist school here is what we believe but at the end of the day we just want your kid to know that God loves them and he's always going to be there for them. We're at primary school, so we're not, you know, we're not university level, but it's always so funny whenever I have to explain what Adventism is. And then I have to say, just like you're saying, you might see some Adventists who might say this, this or the other thing. Please know this is not the mainstream church. <laughs> and i'm wanting to believe that that's true (laughs) but sometimes i you know it's sometimes it's hard it's sometimes hard when i feel like I'm the outlier, you know? Well,
2: and it's partly because, and I mean, this is, this is one of the great shames. I mean, now we're kind of bringing our pre, pre pre-episode discussion in. Um, It's like, uh, in some sense, this is kind of the shame of how the Adventist church, the world church has handled things. The world church in the past has made a a kind of a mockery of itself by trying to go on witch hunts against perceived liberal uh, dangers. And yet, the church has never tried to do similar things with actual dangers. So probably truthfully, a majority of the church holds views that are entirely anti Adventist. Mm. Um, in like, for instance, inerrancy, a completely mm. rejected doctrine in early Adventism, uh, rejected by Ellen White, rejected by most early Adventists. And it is not our doctrine. It is not in the fundamental beliefs. It is, it is not supported. And yet, most Adventists you find have been infected with it and believe it and teach it and would think you're from Satan for suggesting the opposite. It's a priori for so many people. And the church has done nothing to root it out. Yeah, Uh, And even, you know, it's things like that where you're like, okay, so we're upset about whether people are doubting 1844, but we have no problem with the fact that people can't read scripture in the correct way that the denomination teaches. And that really causes kind of like this weird feeling, right? Because it's like, wait a minute, I shouldn't be the outlier. <laughs> I'm do. I'm in the correct. I'm in the lane. I'm, I'm doing the church's message. Like I'm actually, you, we say mainstream, but we mean mainstream like as in official church teaching, uh-huh. but like in terms of actual mainstream, like what do most people believe? It's like, no, like we're not there. It's, it's, it's gone. And so it's, so difficult it really yeah. is you you sit there and you're like no you know i w- i i want the church that's supposed to exist but then that that's honestly true for all christians right like we all mm. all christians face that problem i want the church that's supposed to exist that's what i'm in love with and then what do you got Mm. Yeah. <laughs> you got, sec- you got, you know, leftovers. You got, yeah. you got the, um, it's still good. It's still tasty, but it's like, man, you know, like, can we, can we recook this? Can we, can we get a revival going? <laughs> you yeah. know, um, yeah. there's never a time. I don't think that Christians want a revival because there's always such a need for it. <laughs> like there's, yeah. it's never, there's never a point at which you're like, oh good. <laughs> we don't need a revival now. <laughs> <You> know, it's, <laughs> yeah. it's like, that's just not how the church works.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Anyway, I'm, I'm sorry. I, I I very much derailed us. We were talking about the book. Let's, Josh, bring us back there.
1: <laughs> Aren't you bringing us back? What do I need? to t- <laughs> Talk about the book. Okay. All right, what do you mean when you say when you say saying no to God? You know, just give our, our listeners a little a little taste test because we're talking okay. about food. A little.
2: I've been holding on to this joke for a while, so it's probably going to fail. So, um,
1: just it's to always clarify, a great primer for a joke.
2: Just title. <laughs> does not refer to Jesse, okay? Just to be clear, because I know some readers like Josh, you know, began the episode by saying, I'm gonna say no to Jesse's point. And I just want to be clear, Jesse is not God. Thank you. It doesn't work. Thank this you. book is not advocating for you to say no to idols. I'm just, <laughs> just putting out American idols at that. American um, idols. <laughs> <laughs> the TV show, not literally. Um, <laughs> but yeah so just to clarify sorry it's probably mm. a bad joke but um it, brilliant. it landed it landed,
0: it, it landed beautifully um the crowd went wild it was the best joke of the century just continue yeah. on. and okay. then the
2: wheels just got undercut as the plane landed and exploded <laughs> um so the book's title is controversial at best right when you hear it um there's actually hopefully i don't know cross your fingers there'll be a translation of this into another language and um, they were actually joking that in the other language the title's even sounding worse <laughs> like cool. it just doesn't it, does, it makes even more of a problem for religious audiences so you know the title makes i've had people hear the title and they think oh my goodness you know like this is an atheist book and oh. you know like this 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 can't be christian or or they're confused like i thought you were christian why did you write a book that says something like this and <laughs> i even had i was once at uh, the society of biblical literature meetings and i was talking with a major progressive christian publisher very liberal um biggest name in the industry and i was pitching the book to them and literally the, the marketing person was there and and at, no sooner had i said the title she looked like she was um a conservative who had been caught you know in the headlights of john shelby spong or something like she just she was just she just like why would we ever want to say no to god (laughs) and i was like you publish the people you publish and you're asking (laughs) i was like wow this does touch a nerve like this goes this and this is why roland says it goes beyond the progress it goes beyond the uh, progressives and the conservatives because really and truly um they both agree on this point most Almost, you know all the debates people have uh, about inerrancy aren't really about the main point, which is both sides believe that God is, um, never is never going to be coinciding with error. that mm-hmm. if God says something, it's absolutely going to be true. And that assumption is just that's a fact for progressives and for conservatives. What they argue about usually is is this book? Uh, inerrant, you know, and is this text perfect? And, you know, liberals are like, no, this text isn't a perfect representation. Conservatives are, it is, but they both agree that it's coming from God and God himself is. And when I was trying back in my undergraduate to think through why are we at this impasse why is it that liberals and conservatives cannot come to a middle ground like there's no middle ground especially in america there's no ability for these groups to have a conversation together because it's just, they're talking past each other. And in fact, in Adventism, we ran into this issue with the, or, with the um, task uh, force for ordination committee in which um, the church had brought together all of these uh, different pastors to debate the ordination issue. And the major thing is no one changed their mind virtually. Almost <laughs> every scholar was exactly unmoved after all the papers, after everything. And it all came down to really how you read the Bible and they pretty much you know, pointed out at the end of that that really the task committee that was needed was on biblical interpretation, not, not ordination, because they talk past each other. One person says God said it, that settles it. Another person says God didn't probably say it. It comes from culture, and there's a bit of a mix here of divine. And it's, it's, You're speaking too many different conversations. You're not going to meet together in the middle. So I kept thinking, you know, how do you overcome that? how do you get that middle ground? And part of that was realizing that the Bible didn't support that very basic concept that everybody holds, which is if God says it, yeah, so, you know, absolutely it's true.
0: Mm.
2: And you think like, that's what you all think. Like that must make sense. Um, and they usually think it at best because, you know, you know, God has that one line where he's like, I'm not a human that I should lie or that I should change. Mm. Um, and they just, you know, in perfect, beautiful proof text fashion people grab onto a single text and then like they make their theology on that text do or die um just ask you know the mormons who are baptizing dead people you know like that people (laughs) latch on one verse and they they'll take it as far as they can so in that sense you know it was fascinating to look into the bible and realize that there were these stories in which well, first of all, there are texts. So like there's, there's three steps here you could think of. There's stories in which God orders his prophets to lie, where he like tells Samuel, you have to lie because I need you to get over to David to anoint him as king. But Saul's people will kill you if they know what you're doing. So this is the lie you're going to tell them there. Uh, there's also like Micaiah in 1 Kings 22, where, he, where God is like enlisting the help of angels to figure out how to trick Ahab so that he'll die. And the angels are like, hey, let's go put lies in your prophets. Uh, and God's like, yeah, that sounds like a good idea. <laughs> and you've got uh, prophets who are like praising liars for what they do, like Deborah praising Jael for the lies she gave. And so there's this long history of deceit being employed in the Bible with God. And it's, and much more than what I just laid out. In fact, Jesus does this as well in uh, the Gospel of John. He goes ahead and and um, tells his brothers that I'm not going to the party, but he actually does go to the party and it, he only told them not to go to the party because he wanted to make it a special entrance that he couldn't do if he was with them. So like, there's always this uncomfortable element of deception or lies that have occurred alongside God. And most Christians just ignore it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's like. I don't see it. If I don't look at it, it doesn't exist. If I don't see it, it didn't happen. Uh, But there's that. And then step two, you can say, is you have um, God explicitly in Scripture stating that he is, in fact, um, giving false information. So in Ezekiel, he goes ahead and states that I gave uh, bad laws things against my character to the uh jewish people in jerusalem the israelites in jerusalem um before babylon precisely so that to test them so that when they accepted those things as as if they were good that it proved that they didn't know who i was and i Mm -hmm. and i let them reap the consequences So right off the bat, again, like we have this idea, shockingly, that God could give you something that was actually bad. And the whole point was, according to Ezekiel's, you didn't reject it. Well, why why would I reject something God gives me? (laughs) Mm. Like, what, uh, why should I do that? And then like the third step in this is when you see these stories, which is the center of the book is these stories in which you have human beings conversing with God and God, uh, comes to them shocking. Like after, like in a certain sense, it's like, all right, we've had a really great relationship. God's making all these promises. God's doing all this deliverance. And then suddenly something happens, a mm-hmm. divergence suddenly God acts out of character. God starts to act like a menace. God either tries to attack you, like Genesis 32 with Jacob, or God uh, tells you that he's going to turn against all his promises and kill everybody, like Exodus 32. And in these instances, what is remarkable is that the human figure, the hero of faith, steps up and tells God, no. You will not do this. You cannot do this. This is against your character. This is wrong. And God agrees. Hmm. And that makes these stories so vitally important because people can get wrapped up into all sorts of questions about divine nature and how does God work in terms of time and open theism and all these questions. Great. Here's the bigger question. Why did that faithful guy think that it was the right thing to do to tell God No. And why is it that in the end, the story tells us that was what faith is. And in fact, it doesn't just occur in the Hebrew Bible, like with Moses or Jacob, it occurs in the New Testament. There are similar stories that occur with Jesus that are overlooked. And so what this points to, and what my book tries to focus on, is what do these overlooked stories about human beings interacting with God in this way, tell us both about the nature of God's words How much weight do we give them? How do we evaluate them? Is it a simple, he says it, that settles it, I believe it? Or is there a complexity, a nuance to it? Is there a hermeneutic that's needed to understand what's happening? And as well, how do the examples of these heroes of faith who are doing this give guidance to us in how we read scripture and wrestle with words that are attributed to God? And those two elements, Help to I think, bridge the gap between uh the progressives and the conservatives by bringing them back to scripture and giving them this new middle ground where you can begin to actually have substantive conversations that don't just end up going in circles hmm.
1: wow yeah and <laughs> I gotta say like when I was reading um when I was reading your book and <laughs> I just felt like i've read these bible stories before and i don't know what it is it's like you just you just don't really you don't take in exactly what's happening it's like you sort of skip over the fact that actually you know they're they're going back and forth with with god it's like god said something and then they have a conversation and it's like god changes his mind but you it's like you don't i don't know it's like you don't see it like that mm. unless it's pointed out i don't yeah that's what i found i just even myself even uh, p- particularly when you were sharing the, um, in it you were talking about when Jesus turns water into wine. I was like, wow, yeah. Like Jesus actually says, it's not really my concern. I'm not going to do anything about it. And then Mary's like, no, no, you're going to do something about it. And he does do something about it. The the fact that the wine run out of the wedding. I'm like, wow, I, how have I never noticed that before? Like, you know, I've read this story so many times, but it's like that specific detail about a change in, in God's mind or, or answer or whatever it's never stuck out to me and once you start seeing it you start really seeing it a lot more <laughs> yeah Hell yeah Yeah.
2: absolutely and i mean part of it's just because you don't you don't see it because you don't expect to see it you know mm-hmm. you don't think that it's possible and if you don't think it's possible then you kind of blind yourself to even noticing those things because it's like i mean think about uh genesis 32 you have you have let's I, I always—it's um, so sweet when Bible translations try to translate things in, in less direct ways. You have struggled with God, or better, you have striven with God. <laughs> striven, Driven. and you're like—you're like people are like, no, and you know, and what does it really mean? What does it mean to strive? It can mean to fight. And in fact, the word has to mean fight in the context of Genesis 32 because of what the Hebrew word is used for the wrestling. It's not really wrestling. It's to get dusty. It's to be in a fight match that has you tumbling everywhere with dust in the air. And so, you know, the literal text is, um, you know, not you have striven with God. You have fought God. Get to the point. You have fought God and you prevailed. Mm. You won. I.E. God didn't. And it's amazing like how many people read that story and preach it and like literally do the opposite. I have heard so many sermons that just completely, you know, they're like the angel is like even when you see the paintings of Jacob and, and the angel wrestling, the angel is always the one in control. And Jacob is like, just trying to hold on to like, I'm going to do it. Um, And it's like, that's not what the text says. The text says the angel is the one who's like, please let me go. I shouldn't have attacked you. I need to leave. Jacob's like, I'm not going to let you go. I want a blessing. Um, You know, it's like, Oh my goodness. Like the way that people um, read the story is so oftentimes different Mm -hmm. from what the actual text says. And it's just a, a habit of, how we interpret things. We see what we expect. If it's not a, an option that's available to us, our brain just tries to roll over it. Just, you know, not even notice the, the, the rough edge because we're not trying to find it. And, you know, it's those edges though, like, the, like a Jewish rabbi liked to say at one point, um, you, the, when you read the Bible, it's like reading with a, um, a wool cloth that you glide across the page. And when it snags, that's when you're supposed to pay attention Mm. because when it was gliding, none of that mattered. Mm. You already knew that it's when it snags that suddenly you should be paying attention. You should zero in because now that actually matters. You're actually involved in it. You care. And you gotta, if you don't read with a wool cloth, then, you know, it's just all gliding by and Mm. sure it all sounds pretty, but are you really listening? Um, You know, it's funny in my church that I, you know, my university church, they used to sing all the time, oceans, um, you know, and it's such a great song, but you know, it took like a long time singing that song before I really thought about, dang, dang, um, that, uh, that line about, uh, spirit lead me into deep waters and, and the language about almost drowning. And like that's not exactly, um, That's not exactly all sunshine and roses. Like, you know, like I think most students singing that song are just skipping by that verse and you're like, wait a minute, what am I singing here? I'm asking the spirit to drag me into the sea? Uh that's where all the monsters are. <laughs> that's where all the turmoil <laughs> is. Like, wait a minute. I was don't I supposed to be getting the spirit to lead me out of that already? Uh and that's kind of the the funny thing. We we tend to hear things and we, we latch on to what we like. And then it takes us a long time to really hear it with new ears and go, wait a minute, that line, that's kind of deep. Man, this is a much more serious song, you know, like you know, even commitments people take, you know, it's so easy to be wrapped up and be like, oh this is wonderful and exciting. So yeah, if you go ahead and read a text uh, enough times, if you are hearing something enough times, you're going to start to pick up on those things that you took for granted. And I think that that's a a pretty major element in what my book is trying to do in a sense that you kind of picked up on. It's, it's, It's zeroing in on these problematic texts, not to skip by them, but also not to just problematize them for the sake of problematizing them. It's not Mm. like sensational. Hey, look at this crazy verse. It's wait a minute. What does this have to say? Like Genesis 32 is a pretty major text, right? This is when Israel, the people of God get their calling, get their official name. And, and like, if you ask an average Christian, what does Israel mean? No one knows. (laughs) Like it's such a basic question. Yeah. what does what were the people of call of God called oh, Israel? Okay, what what does that mean? Oh, well, there's something about L on it, so probably God. Um, <laughs> what's it, Israel? I, I failed Hebrew. I never took Hebrew. Why wow, my pastor never said anything about it? Uh, and it's like it means, uh huh, <laughs> those who
0: fight God. Wait, what? <laughs> huh? That's. What? I think is, I, I think the Sounds like a judgment. the, the toned down version that I always heard was the people who struggle with God, you know. Like it's not Oh yeah. It's not necessarily it's not a fight. It's like we're going to struggle. You know, it's, a, it's But, but existential, here's the problem with that, right? Is that oh we're
2: going to struggle with God, but how do they frame it? We're going to struggle mm. with God and God wins. <laughs> right? Yeah. But like yeah. Genesis 32, that's not the meaning. Like, it's, it's Jacob, you defeated God, so you're going to be named Israel because you struggled with God and implied in the, the name, you were the one who won. Mm. So then when you name the people that, then they're supposed to imitate Jacob's battle, which ended up with him prevailing. Right. Which is, is like wait a minute, these aren't just those who fight God. I've heard ministers who who will say this, they'll be like, "See, this was a judgment against Israel. They were always <laughs> backsliding against God. They were always <laughs> fighting him when they should." It's like that's not what the text is saying. It's a blessing. This name was given as their calling. But of course, it's a calling that strikes us so strange. Mm-hmm. Why would God praise Jacob for winning, let alone the fact that he won? How could he? But Also, why in the world is he praised for it? And why are the people of Israel called to repeat it? And, you know, in my book, what I try to narrow this down is something that John Calvin said, which is really um, any fight with God is a fight that God engineered, uh, a fight in which he um, arms you with the blade to strike him with uh, at the same time as he provides the means uh, for, you know, to allow you to do what you're doing. In other words, your victory against God, like Jacob, is actually paradoxically supposed to be God's victory over you. Hmm. And it's that it's that balance there that, like I try to argue in the book, in which, you know, when you examine the story of Jacob in the light of all these other stories where God is fighting people, you start to see this kind of testing motif, this idea of God engaging his partner to see if they know who he truly is, if he'll stand by um, the promises. So like Jacob, Jacob has been promised so much by God already before this event occurs. And now God comes to attack him. God seemingly comes to just undermine the whole thing, throw away all the promises. And then the angel is like, the man is like, hey, I want to go. I'm going to leave. Well, what does that mean? If Jacob says, sure, thy will be done, go and leave. Where does that leave him? That leaves him with a curse, with a dark night and a struggle that left him with a limp and no blessing. Hmm. Right? That's the God he worships, a God who promised him blessing, but instead gave him a limp and left. Right? Jacob won't have it. He says, no, I want a blessing. And people can read that egotistically. They can read it lots of ways. But really, I think what the core of this is, is Jacob saying, I want that blessing you promised me. I want you to keep your word. I want you to be the God that you said you were, and I'm not going to believe that you're going to just leave me here. So then when you see it in that light, okay, well, what then actually is the point of what God says you won, right? You won, not because you seem something seemingly are supernaturally more strong than God is. You won because you refuse to let go of the promise, You won because you trusted that I wasn't actually a curse to you, that I was gonna give you a blessing. You win and the people of Israel win because they will reject, like you, that negative image of me and they will hold firm to the promise. And when you see it that way, all right, now Israel makes sense as a blessing because these are the people who are going to embody God by holding fast to his character and fighting anything that paints that character in a negative light, which is again, the same thing that occurs in Exodus 32 with Moses when he's arguing with God and it all comes down to promises. Mm. God, you can't do this thing. It would be evil because you would be breaking the promises that you gave. And what happens? God agrees. You know, it's this, it's this testing motif of do you really believe what I promised you? And, The way I like to put this into sort of context in a meta-narrative is to think of it in this way. Go back to the Garden of Eden. Go back and look at Adam and Eve with the serpent. And when you see Adam and Eve with the serpent, what you end up getting is two individuals who are told by God, don't do this thing. And then a serpent shows up, a stranger, and the stranger tells them, Did God really say that? Get some questioning. And that's not bad. I don't think any of that's bad. I don't think it was wrong for them to talk to the serpent. I think there's no evidence in the Bible to suggest any of that was wrong. But this is where things go south. And that is when the serpent says, well, he's wrong. I mean, he's lying to you. He's he's not, you know, he only says that because he knows that when you eat this, you'll be actually like him. Mm -hmm. I.E., he knows this is in your best interest. It's a threat to him. He's manipulating you. He's controlling you. He doesn't have your best interests at heart. He's, you know, i.e. evil or malicious in some sense. Mm-hmm. So you should get back at him and do the very thing that he didn't want you to do. Here, here's a fruit. Eat, eat. There's no time limit on this. There's no reason for um, them to go, yeah, let's go now and do it. And just to be clear, for those that don't read their Bible very carefully, it is very clear in the text that Adam is standing right next to his wife as the whole scene occurs. Okay? I've had too many people who continue like, no, Eve went off on her own. No, <laughs> no, she didn't. The Bible's text is pretty clear. And he, she gave to her husband who had been standing by her the entire time. Read the Bible, it's there. But nonetheless, let's not put all the blame on Eve. Adam was, was in full agreement. What we end up seeing is that Adam and Eve don't have a time limit for doing this, and yet they're immediately interested in doing it. But moreover, to, to realize the insanity of this story, all you have to do is tell a different story to get the point. Imagine you're watching a movie, and there is um, a husband, he's walking down the street, Um, I'm gonna use a husband uh, as the analogy. I could try to be more egalitarian, but just I'll go with the classic male motif at the moment. Uh, Movies usually do. So there's a man walking down and you end up getting um, the stranger who comes out suddenly and goes, hey, 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 your wife of like 10 years, whatever, um, or five years, she's been cheating on you. Uh, And she's been cheating on you, Uh, but it's okay, dude. It's okay there's like, I can, I can help you cheat on her too. Like there's these people over here you can go to and you can get back at her for what happened. And uh, you can get what, you know, was being denied, blah, blah, blah. If you're watching that scene and the guy's like, all right. Yeah. Screw her. Yeah. Terrible. I knew it. Like, how could she Right? Like if that happened, you'd be like, you would not be like, wow, that stranger was so crafty. You wouldn't think, wow, that stranger was so enticing. You wouldn't think, wow, that stranger truly had a deceptive way of phrasing things. You wouldn't say that stranger knew how to cast doubt in that person's mind. You would turn your attention to the husband and go, "Dang, that relationship broke down long before the stranger showed up."
0: Mm. Yeah. Right. You
2: just psychologically, it would make no sense. No one there would think that stranger was the center point of the story. You go, that husband's relationship was really in a wreck. If he can believe that this occurred and he's so angry in his conviction of it that he's like, yeah, let's do it. And this becomes the problem with how people read Adam and Eve's story. They don't read it in that way. They're like, wow, that serpent must've been crafty. Like, what the heck? This is the exact same scenario. God is their spouse, their loving father, their their only compatriot who's with them. And they are literally going to just say, sure, this strange talking snake is telling me that he's been lying to us. Let's not go confront God about it. Let's not go ask him about it. Let's not even wait a while and think about it. Let's just go and rebel. Mm -hmm. Right? Like that, there's something about this that tells you that there's a subtext to the Genesis story, a pre story, that in some sense, Adam and Eve's relationship with God had become, had began to deteriorate before the serpent showed up. Now, how that happened, why, the story doesn't tell us. But it's important to note that what Adam and Eve's real failing is yes, they disobeyed God, but the motivation, that led to the action is like Cain with sin creeping at the door. The Mm. real problem, of course, murder is bad, but it's that creeping at the door thing that God said you got to get a handle on, right? It's the fact that Adam and Eve are willing to throw everything away and not fight for it that really tells you what their problem is. They Mm. don't want to confront God. They don't care enough about God to confront God. They don't care enough to fight God and say, hey, why is the serpent saying these things? They're willing to throw him away and believe the worst and have nothing to do with him. Hmm. So why then is God so interested in naming his people those who fight him? The meta-narrative here is that God is trying to create a new humanity, a people of God who will not do what Adam and Eve did who would confront him who would be engaged in their relationship equally with him who would want to embody that mm-hmm. and in seeing that kind of a trajectory you can start to see a meta narrative that forms between adam and eve jacob going on through christ and onward of realizing the kinds of the kind of trajectory god is leading his people into um, an active engaging relationship something where you can have Jesus and the people of God talking with each other, going back and forth. Whereas again, that just doesn't happen with Adam and Eve. Humanity is, is okay. Just sitting there going, Oh, God's bad. Sure. I'll believe it. Let's eat.
1: Hmm.
2: Like, and, and in some sense wow. too, it says a lot about our own culture and time in mm-hmm. which people are so obsessed with trying to prove that God really exists and yet spending less time trying to prove that God's character is truly loving. Right? Like the same apologetics and evangelicalism in America who are trying so desperately to prove the existence of God are equally fine going around saying that actually God is going to burn everyone in hell and God's going to do that. Like they, it's like, wait a minute, there's a disconnect here. Mm. You're so focused on God's existence and so less focused on God's character. And the problem is, uh, the real emphasis in scripture is on God's character. And even in Adventism, you know, within the context of, of Adventism, the great controversy is entirely focused on God's character. God's character is at the center of the whole thing. Uh, and that's one of the reasons why, for instance, Alan White thought that, you know, believing in an eternal hell is a satanic doctrine, a satanic deception, because it is something that makes god look like satan makes god look demonic and anything that starts to paint god in that negative light is the opposite of what god's people are called to do which hmm. is to push back against such images
0: wow dude i think <laughs> i think everybody listening to this if you're still with us man all of our minds are still like completely simultaneously blown <laughs> like i got so many thoughts going through my head first very first initial thought um, it seems to be to me that you are not suggesting but actually saying rather forcefully and with great conviction is that the virtue I suppose if we were to take that meta-narrative and then you know go past the the pages of acts into the the, the modern era of the church and right? like how we live out our faith now in our modern context that this idea of um, God's sovereignty that God is just going to do what he's going to do because that's what he's going to do and there's nothing we can do about it that's not so much that's not the virtuous path the virtuous path is actually when we engage with God even if it's on a negative level even if it's on a questioning level that actually saying questioning God engaging with God uh, is the sort of relationship that God wants to have with us rather than the passive. Okay. Well, God's just going to do what he's going to do because he's God and I can't do anything about it. Is that sort of what you're saying? Definitely. Absolutely. What I'm saying, um, you know, this is,
2: this is not accepting it, 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 I'll say it in a words I think are better. So Martin Luther uh, was a big proponent of this. Um, Luther and Calvin, but Luther was like super big on this. Luther believed that the fight with Jacob uh, and the name of Israel and its calling to fight God was the singular, like, cornerstone message that Christians needed to understand. Like, this was one of the big ones that had to be uh, perceived to understand what God was doing. And one of the things he said is um, if Jesus Christ came to me and said, I reject my promises, I am going to throw you into hell. I do not care. He said, I would not have to agree with him. I would not have to believe him. I would not have to submit to him. I would have to fight him like Jacob. And I would have to do so even in the pits of hell because I know the promise he gave me and nothing can change that, not even God. (laughs) And that is, that is the center point of like this idea that when God gives a message, uh, when God gives a promise, it does not go back that God's will is eternal. Now there's an important point here, which is that, you know, Malachi three tells us God does not change, but that's not really a reference to God's actions. That's a reference to God's will. God's will doesn't change. If God tells you it is my will to bless you, mm. he's not going to decide someday he's going to curse you. Mm. But it doesn't mean that his actions will always be unchanging, mm. that he's not going to test you. He's that he's not going to present situations before you that are going to move you into uncomfortable spaces and even spaces that make him look hostile towards you. And, you know, it's that It's that uncomfortableness, right? But this is an important point, too, to add in here, which is that in each of these stories, the hero of faith who undergoes this testing of God presenting himself opposite of who he is, does not, this hero of faith, is someone who's already had a strong faith conviction built with that god they've had a long relationship with that god they know who god is this is not something that just occurs to any old person this isn't like something a new christian goes through this isn't this is the person who has been in a long relationship with god having their relationship solidified having that conviction uh brought together that makes this an important distinction because it's not as if this is you know it's not like the text, I think, what is it's in James or where it says, um, you know, let no one say that God has tempted them. Uh, right. There's a difference here. The people who God is testing, he knows they're going to pass the test. He knows that they know who he is. So they, he knows they're not going to go ahead and fall for the deception. They're, Jacob's not going to think that he, God's really a curse. Moses is not going to think that God's a promise breaker, which is why it works. It's not however, like God is coming to say, Oh, let me really try to deceive you to get you to -hmm. do what's wrong. You know, that's not God's intention. I want to clarify that because that can be a little bit misunderstood. And it's not also true that everyone wins who fights against God. My book Mm -hmm. tackles lots of stories in which people don't win because depending on your motivations, depending on your vision of God, that will depend on whether you win. Do you know Mm. the god you're fighting for if you're fighting for a a god that's not god you're gonna lose like jonah Hmm.
0: Mm. i have one more question uh and then if josh has any more then then we can go for that but i've heard you mention john calvin several times as you know something somebody supporting the sort of idea that you're saying i'm just interested i'm not a calvinist uh expert by any stretch of the imagination but I do know enough about Calvinism to, to kind of go, hang on, are we, are we misreading Calvin when he talks about some of his... Because, I mean, the most that I know about John Calvin is, you know, that where's Adventists Don't agree with him with the predestination stuff. So what's, what's, uh, what's your perspective on that? It's just you, you mentioned Calvin. I'm like, Ooh, that sound that doesn't sound yeah. like what I know.
2: I don't think calvin's very systematic about this but i'm not a calvinist uh, expert either um what i do know is that luther and calvin when they're writing their commentaries and lecturing on genesis uh, and exodus they both agree on their commentary for describing these stories and understanding what is being described now this is also true for ellen white ellen white reads exodus and reads it the exact same way but notice that there's really not much else in Ellen White's theology that seems to take into account what she notes, like she reads it. She's like, yep, that's what it says. And then it's like, all right, out of sight, out of mind. (laughs) <laughs> okay, We're not going to apply these insights, you know, even though like seemingly they reverberate throughout all the rest of the scriptures. Um, nope, we'll just keep going. And I feel like to some degree, I mean, Luther was different. Luther actually did try to apply this everywhere, but I think Calvin and maybe Ellen White both are perhaps similar. I can't prove it. I haven't done a deep study of Calvin to try to understand that, but I suspect my suspicion would be that he's like Alan White in that sense. It's like, yes, he read the story. He came up with an exegetical answer to make sense of it and then kept going and did not try to integrate that into the rest. Cause it, it is a strange thing. Like if this is mm-hmm. true, you'd think that there would be consequences for Calvinist thought based off of this phenomenon. But I mean, as you know, like it doesn't seem like there is. So hmm. I hmm. agree. It's strange.
0: Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, I've had, a few, I've, I've had a few chats with Calvinists and from what I've gathered, they would definitely not jive with this, whether John Calvin would or not. The Calvinists that I've met are very much down the line of, nope, God's got his little ledger. He's written down all the data ahead of time and that's it <laughs> you know there's nothing else so yeah no i, I had
2: a, I had a conversation once with a with a diehard calvinist who believed that it's okay to kill children because the bible says so and um what the heck at, yeah i tried you know the, the 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 law in leviticus that says you can parents can stone a child sure um, yeah that's and, that's totally cool and so he you know He was, anyways, it was, it was an interesting conversation. He said that he wished that progressive Christians, because, you know, he didn't know Adventists. He wished that progressive Christians had this kind of a biblically based view, despite the fact they disagreed with it. But he's like, at least I could have some sort of basis with you to talk about stuff. But, um, but he still ultimately was just like, no, God could have totally broken his promises. It wouldn't be, or, or it wouldn't be breaking his problem. Like there's always an excuse to get around and try to say that the text isn't really saying what you're saying. You're, you're just, you know, it, it's once you're in that ideological mold, um, oh. you not only don't see what's there, yeah. uh,
0: you deny it. <laughs> well, I bet that he's probably never killed a child. Um, no, if... no, because there's laws against it. it. Exactly, yeah. And he doesn't have a reason That's to. That's a shame. a shame. He's, defend- what a he's shame. defending it
2: in principle.
0: Ah, cool, man. Cool. That's a very. He sounds like a fun person to 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 hang nice. out with.
2: Scary enough. He's he's totally a normal person to talk.
1: To. <laughs> Such a <laughs> <what's> scary. <laughs> yeah. uh, okay. I have uh I have a couple of questions. Um, I guess I don't think we're gonna cut answer get a chance to go through all of our questions because we're already at like an hour. But I feel like I would love to just. There's just some more I'd like to to drill into. I guess. Um do you think that in a way that people are already saying no to god today like are we already doing this in practice and we don't realize
2: i do absolutely i mean like we already have in many occasions throughout church history like the most recent big one that you can think of would probably be um slavery uh christians have promptly moved from 100 200 years ago pretty much all agreeing in unison that god's in favor of slavery <laughs> Uh, or that God's okay with it, it's not sinful, that to declare it as sinful would be to harm the Bible writers and their reputation. We've gone from that to the Bible doesn't support slavery. How can you even suggest that? Those texts, you're reading them out of context. It's like, oh my goodness, we've gotten such a 180 on that. And it all was because of abolitionists who rejected those things and said, look, uh, the outline of scripture is against slavery, even if specific verses are in favor of it. And so the character of God cannot be in unison with this. And Ellen White herself did a similar argument where she said, um, there's no argument you can give, i.e. from the Bible, um, that can contradict what the Holy Spirit has revealed as present truth about slavery. Um, And that's yeah, yeah. And she wrote that as a, as a rebuke to an Adventist who was promoting it. Um, um and so, and defending it in the South. So, that, and she said, get out of the church. We don't want you if you're going to keep doing this. Um, legend. it's, yeah, it, it's, I mentioned, I think I mentioned it and I quoted in the book on um, the chapter on prejudice. But the thing is, is that, uh, we do this still today. So like, if you go to an, uh, no, I won't say Adventist church, no, no go to an evangelical church in in the s- Southern United States and, imagine some, a normal congregation, not like a super independent <laughs> fundamentalist church or something, but like a normal congregation of evangelicals, you get somebody up there who starts quoting off the kill the, kill the same, the male same sex uh, intercoursers texts and in Leviticus and, and whatever. And you start having them say like, yes, we need to kill the gays. <laughs> you know, we need to defend, we need to enact God's will. Right. You will have probably a few evangelicals calling nine one one, or yeah. or like concerned uh, about this, right? They're not going to go, Amen, the word of God, Amen, hey, mm. right? Like, and the way they get around this is they go, well, God says vengeance is mine, saith the Lord. So you know, it, God does the killing in hell. I. Uh, we aren't supposed to do it, right? But this is their way of getting around it. But they're just saying no. They're saying no to the text. The text doesn't tell you that you are supposed to. And the, and the super crazy fundamentals know that. <laughs> they're yeah. like, "When the hell? These liberal, these liberal evangelicals, they don't think we should be doing these things. The Bible's clear. Um, but people already are saying no in the fact that they're like, oh, well, God's going to judge it later. That's not, that's not an explicit teaching in the Bible. You can imply that from things Jesus said and taught and the way he handled scripture, but it's not explicitly said. There's no necessary reason to assume that the laws of Israel would suddenly stop being important laws for your society. Or again, like even if you weren't going to enact a death penalty, to, make, to accept that um, homosexuality is tolerable is something that is not even necessarily evil or or bad in a legal sense right you don't even make it a criminal act for christians to move even evangelicals to move that direction they've already said no to a number of things in the text and they're still latching on to little tiny bits Mm. it's almost like john macarthur who was interviewed about um slavery and he said well god approved of it so there must be some forms of slavery that are good like, like American slavery, that was bad, but I can't <laughs> condemn slavery in general. Cause like there obviously must be some good forms of it. Right. It's almost like the, 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 the homosexuality issue in Leviticus. Well, we don't kill um, gay people, but, but there's still something wrong with it. So we're, you know, it's still, it, we're going to make a moral issue out of it. And we're going to still hang on to this text uh, and, and not face the fact that um, the demographics are changing. Like, um, like almost half of all evangelicals believe that uh, gay marriage should be legal and, and fine in the United States. Really? really? Yeah. Pew research. And then, and then on top of that, um, every other major denomination, including ours and anyone else um, and every other religion has a majority over 50% of its congregates congregations that hold to the conviction that it's perfectly normal to have same sex marriages in the United States. Um, that goes for Muslims, Hindus, Adventists, et cetera.
0: That's crazy. So
2: evangelicals are like the last remaining holdout where they're like at 45% or whatever. They're, they haven't crossed the 50% threshold, but it's pretty remarkable, like how the demographics have shifted and changed. And, um, you know, it's hard not to see to a certain degree why, because it, you know, in some sense, it's like the classic dilemma of Job you know, where Job has an experience that contradicts scripture and his friends are like, nah, it contradicts scripture. He's like, but I'm living proof. Mm. Nah, this is problematic. You know, (laughs) and the experience that Job has is more important than the text of scripture that his friends want to quote from Deuteronomy and Proverbs. And when you look at that and you look at like LGBTQ, you, you look at what's going on. I know so many um, Christians who are in that community. I know so many Christian ministers who are in that community, right? Imagine that, right? Like just imagine that 150 years ago, Christian ministers who are LGBTQ, who dedicate their life to ministry and preaching and right and you look at that and it's like the more it grows the more that those experiences are around you it's just like racism with having black people integrating into your communities it's really hard to deny that somebody's a human being when they're in front of you Mm. it's really hard to deny they're a christian when you see the fruits of the spirit more in their life than yours (laughs) it's really hard and then that becomes Uh, a real issue. But again, like um, a lot of the issue with saying no to God per se, and it goes beyond just like LGBT, there's lots of things you could say we do that too. Um, But it's really an issue of saying, are we really reading scripture as good as we can? Are we giving it our all? Are we really paying attention to these texts? Or are we reading them through predisposed lenses? Are we reading them in a way that uh, we already decided what they were going to say beforehand? You know, Mm. a great example of this is the Leviticus text. (laughs) People quote it all the time for homosexuality, but the text doesn't mention men and women. The text mentions men Mm. with men and only in a sexual act. There's no mention about relationships. There's no mention about romance. There's no mention about Paul's cool idea about married people can be celibate and that would be the preferred option. First Corinthians seven. Um, there's no mention of any of those themes. It's just, Oh, there's a man with a man and they had sex. That's bad. Mm. And then when you get to Paul and Romans, uh, Paul goes ahead and is quoting Leviticus. But again, he like throws in women as an after Oh, and they're unnatural. Men are abomination uh, women. They're unnatural. They're like, wait a second. These texts are not describing uh, homosexuality. They're not describing same-sex orientation. They're describing very specific things that are like specific acts or a specific uh, modus operandi, right? And when you start noticing how literal these texts actually are about what they're saying, it's like, wait a minute, are all these evangelicals actually liberals? they seem to be adding a lot to the text. (laughs) They're like like adding layers of interpretation that this text does not state. And when you only have two major texts that actually address this issue explicitly, it's just like, I'm not telling people who are listening, like what the answer needs to be, but there needs to be a readdressing of that issue. issue. There needs to be a reevaluation of what does scripture say? And and not just what have we thought it said and what do we keep insisting it says, but no, no, no. What does the Bible actually tell us? And, you know, it's unfortunate that that question has to be so problematic, but it also makes sense why it should be the center question that, you know, force that kind of confronts us today.
0: Well, it is the big question of our time. And I know. Josh and I are definitely still working through this. I mean, we only recently had Andre Afmasanga on the podcast where he talked about some of his um, journey in being a gay man, a minister in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. And he actually, uh, two years ago, was it Josh or something like that? He actually decided that he would step down because he didn't want to see any controversy happen. But... It's interesting since that conversation, I, Josh and I and the people around us have been having this conversation more and more and more. It's like this boulder that has just kind of been picking up speed and we're only kind of like now picking up on that uh, as a church. But I'm, I'm glad you shared some of that stuff. Um, man, this is the problem with you, Matthew. You talk and then I have so many more questions and I realize we don't have time for it. It's that's that's it's it's okay i was on an
2: australian podcast and we went five hours oh my gosh live
0: it's like like joe rogan level my dude
2: i was like i was like i'm 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 wasted dude you drained (laughs) me (laughs) you know but like it's it's
0: like i'm i'm an
2: easy talker i can i love the stuff so it's not hard for me to be passionate and want to talk about it um but not everyone always has the mental strength or the or the uh, back strength to keep sitting and listening.
0: <laughs> well, I, I I know of at least three topics that I wanted you to come back and talk about one day. So maybe we'll have to.
1: We'll have, I would be honoured to. Three
0: three is a conservative number, by the
1: way. <laughs> um, that' awesome. Yeah, and there's oh man, I had another question. Uh, anyway, we should we should be responsible with our regular listening time, but. Essentially, one thing I'm really getting from this though, and I think a big practical take-home point for people is I guess the, and maybe you can correct me if I'm not wording this adequately, uh, but I guess the prioritization over God's character, over necessarily how things are written and um, understanding that. And I think that can be really tough for people to work out. Like I wouldn't want somebody to walk away from this podcast or, and I know they wouldn't if they'd read your whole book. Um, it's a great book and I would really recommend it to people but I wouldn't want people to walk away thinking oh i just say no to the whole thing because you can say no to this this or that no. or you can say no to anything no, no. but that's clearly not how it works?
2: No, that that that's the way of Jonah. That's that can go. That can go <laughs> south. That can go south real quick. Now you can you can lose that battle with God real fast. God lets you win <laughs> if you fight for the right. If you fight for the right thing, and He will let you fall in your face if you uh, switch your priorities the wrong way. And it is it is not you know it, you walk away with a limp like Jacob. It is hmm. not a light thing to argue with God. It is a calling, but it will it can leave you scarred and those scars can either become your strength and your reminder of those battles, or it can demonstrate how foolish you were. <laughs> uh, you know, it can go either way. It just, it's, it's a question of where your faith is and what God you think you serve. Mm-hmm. If you think you know who Yahweh is and you serve the God of, of Jesus Christ, then you will be victorious like Christ. If you go ahead and put your faith in a God that looks like uh, Marduk, you might find out what the fate of Marduk was. <laughs> oh,
1: that's awesome. That's great. Uh, all right. Hey, well, thank you so much. Um, yeah, really appreciated so much about this. I'm sure we will have you back on um, soon. But um, why don't you just, uh, if people want to follow along with what you're doing or uh, support you or to read the book, um, where do they go? What's going on? Yeah. Um.
2: And- so the books sold wherever books are sold you know if you like Barnes and Noble if you want books a million if you want um Amazon lots of people usually get it on Amazon so if you go there you can get that um there's also a Patreon if you want an autographed copy um and other perks and cool stuff going on there so or you just want to support me Patreon's the thing um but beyond that, you know, you can find me on my website uh, www.matthewjcourtman.com, and um, you can find the book's website is uh, wwwsayingno 2 um, But you know, I'm I'm everywhere. I'm on Facebook. I'm on Twitter. I'm on TikTok. You know, I'm I'm everywhere. So if you know you yes. want to connect, I'm always open, always available. I'm not shy. Um, that's one thing I try to do is to be as, as least pretentious as possible. Like I am who I am. Um, I mean what I say and, um, I'm okay if you don't agree. Um, you know, just don't hate me for it. <laughs> don't come after me with a pitchfork. Uh, I, I want a conversation, not, not a
1: fight. Ooh, ironic. <laughs> yeah. That's, that's been a big God's part the of- one I want a fight. <laughs> that's been a big part of what we've been trying to build with this this podcast too is that you know you can listen to whether it's just Jesse and I talking or we have a guest we want you to engage with it and you know wrestle with it and you know you might not agree with every guest on here and that's totally cool but we want to hear and we want to understand and yeah and I think that's awesome so I'm glad you have the same mindset Um, that's really awesome so guys go get the book go do what you got to go, go check out his patreon all that sort of stuff it's awesome any last words Jesse
0: no Um I just want to say once again thank you Matthew um I, I definitely want to bring you back to focus in on some of these things. We talked a bit at the beginning of the show towards the end. Um, but yeah, I really appreciate your voice in academia and uh, yeah, just in the church. So thank you, man. And uh, looking forward to the next one. Thank you
2: so much for bringing me on. And it has been honestly an honor and a pleasure. You guys are great. Keep up the amazing work on this podcast. Oh.
1: Thank you, man. Thank you. Hey, and uh, yes, we'd love to hear what you think, everybody. Um, best place to go for all things Burn the Haystack is burnthehaystack.org. Find links to all of our social and um, a way to contact us there. Plus, in the show notes, we'll have a link to uh, Matt's stuff as well. Which mm. be good. Absolutely. Uh, And if you
0: would like to go the next step, if you're not already subscribed, hit that subscribe button wherever you are, whether you're on YouTube uh, or on whatever podcatching app that you're using. And if you would like to uh, get this podcast out there, leave us a rating or a review on the podcatching app of your choice. Uh, Leave us a comment on the social media spaces. Do all the good stuff. Um and buy our merch, buy lots of buy a shirt, buy lots of shirts and buy stuff all, like that. Buy fifty. Yep. In the immortal words of Shia LaBeouf, just do
1: it. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, Christmas is coming up, so just buy lots of shirts. Buy them for everybody, even if they don't listen to podcasts, they don't even know what it is. Just buy them shirts. That's what we. That's what we want. Yep. But you guys are awesome. We love you all. Stay awesome. It's Josh, Jesse, and Matthew out.